Hey to all you fish enthusiasts out there, whether you're an avid angler or just curious about fish, we'd like to welcome you to Fish of the Week, your audio almanac of all the fish. It's Monday, June 5th, 2023, and we're on a week-by-week tour of fish across the country with guests from all walks of life. I'm Katrina Liebick with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Alaska. And I'm Guy Iro, and this week we're heading to the U.S.'s south coast to talk about one of the most popular sport fishes in our salt waters, that's the red snapper. And we are very pleased to welcome our guest, Greg Stuns, Dr. Snapper himself, a man with quite a resume who has quite possibly spent more time catching and studying Red Snapper than anyone on the planet. And we think that he's perfect for this episode. So welcome to the show. All right. Thank you. Great to be here. Okay. So we've got Red and we've got Snapper and this fish's name. And usually fish names give some clues in terms of their appearance or how they behave. So we'd love if you could help us imagine what it would be like. You've got this fish on, you reel it in, you're holding it in your hands. What are you seeing as you have this fish? You're exactly right. First, they're a very beautiful fish, a really bright reddish orange color is what they look like. They're called snapper, probably because they're just a voracious fish. They're relatively easy to catch. So that makes them a great sport fish. They're also important commercial fishery surrounding the species. And then on top of that, they're just a great table fare. They're probably one of the best fish to eat there are out there for sure in the Gulf of Mexico. So it's just all around a great species to both catch commercially for sale, but also recreationally. Awesome. And are there any kind of features you'd really key in on if you were like holding it, like how it feels or like the eye color, like the size or anything like that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Very distinctive uh, red eye color. They have very large heads. You know, the head makes up what feels like, you know, about a third of their body or so. And so very broad shoulders. That's what makes them fight very well because they're difficult Mm -hmm. to reel in. They can really use that as leverage, but a really pretty fish. And of course, typically they're occurring out in some very blue water, not always, but very clear water. So you can see them coming up. It's just a really nice experience all the way around. Okay. Are there any species that are commonly confused with red snappers that look similar that we'd want to kind of distinguish for folks? Yeah, the red snapper, once you catch one and see it, it's pretty obvious what's going on. But we have something called vermilion snapper, which are a lot smaller than the red snapper. They look very similar. Uh, There's some lane snapper and some other snapper species that are pretty common, the mangrove or gray snapper. So there's about four or five that are similar. But once you see one, there's not a question. They're pretty recognizable. You mentioned a bunch of different names of fish, and I really kind of want to understand where this species fits into the kind of larger family that it belongs to. Can you tell us anything about this family of fish, maybe what its closest relatives are, and just kind of put them in context in terms of, yeah, where this fish belongs in the family tree of fishes? We've never done a Lut Janet on this show before. Yeah, well, FYI. there you go. <laughs> so they're Lut Janet family. They're part of what we call the snapper family. And there's a variety of similar species throughout the world that even look kind of similar. And they play a very sort of similar functional role uh, in the ecosystem. And some of those ones I've talked about that are most closely related are the mangrove or gray snapper, the vermilion snapper, lane snapper. So in the Gulf, at least, we've got a lot of them. But down in the Caribbean, along the Pacific, they call them pargo out there. But out there, they're more related. What we have is the Kubera snappers, which they do occur in the Gulf, but they're not near as common as the red snapper and those other species. 
They kind of remind me of a freshwater drum with that head size, just the way they look a little bit. We learned about them earlier this a year. A little bit. They're, you know, evolutionary speaking, they're relatively young. They branched off, you know, they're out on the twigs of the, you know, fish family tree kind mm-hmm. of thing. But mm-hmm. they look a lot like the drum, but drums are part of, well, the drum mm-hmm. or the cyanid type families. And these fish, they can make some noise, but not like the drumming family okay. uh, can. Folks interested in genealogy, yeah, get into your fish trees. It's pretty interesting to see kind of where different fish fall out, and they may even look similar but have very different lineages, so that's cool. Exactly. And so Mother Nature has a way of, you know, even though you might have distant Mm -hmm. relatives, certain ways you're structured come together in terms of convergent evolution to look similar, even though you may not have that ancestry. There's something to the shape of that head that makes them successful evolutionary. Yeah, they're super cool. You want one guy or? Sure. Yeah. So I've never caught a red snapper, but I've caught like mangrove snappers or things like that. And I've noticed that they got like really big teeth. What are those used for? What are these guys hunting in the wild and what's their feeding ecology like? Well, they're really a jack of all trades kind of fish in terms of their feeding life history. They'll eat just about anything from squid to fish to a variety of crustaceans. They're even feeding things in the water columns, such as large plankton that happen to be floating by. They're not very particular, let me put it that way. And so that's what also makes them great to catch. But because they feed on sometimes fast moving fish or maybe slippery fish, they do have rather gripping teeth. So is there preying on that prey, they can handle them really well and capture them. When I think about kind of these ocean species, I'm always curious, like what they are associating with. Are they associated with any kind of structure? Are they moving around like roving? Are they really kind of keying into certain features in their environment? Yeah, they're part of the reef fish complex. And that means that they're very structure oriented fish. You typically don't find them unless there's some type of relief off the bottom or maybe relief in the bottom, such as a hole or something. But they're very much associated with structure. And so that creates angling opportunities. So, for example, in the Gulf, you've got a lot of large oil and gas platforms that extend from the seafloor up to the surface. And those are very popular areas to catch them because they're congregated around those structures. We also have natural features as well, just natural banks and reefs and that sort of thing. They also have a high abundance there. And what we discovered from some of our scientific findings is it doesn't take much for them. It could be as small as, let's say, you know, maybe a kitchen chair size Ah. structure that, you know, it doesn't take much to congregate them. So Okay. And are they like moving big distances or are they really kind of keying into a certain spot? Do we know anything about their movement through studies? Not really. We call that site fidelity from a yeah. you know sciencey kind of term. But what that means is they really stay put. We think they move over time. Of course, hurricanes and other storms could disrupt them. Sometimes certain habitats are connected together, like by a reefy outcropping, or in the case of oil and gas platforms, there might be a pipeline. And of course, we see them moving along that structure. But in general, we tag them with sophisticated electronic tags that can last up to three years in terms of battery life. And the tags will die. You know, their batteries will go out after three years on the exact same spot. And of course, our tags tell us they're moving and all that. So we know it's just not a dead fish or tag on the bottom. So they they generally like to stay put. Interesting. That would be opposed to something what we would call like pelagic or migratory species. Sometimes there's highly migratory species like tunas or billfish, dolphin fish, for example, that are constantly on the move and going from place to place in a fairly rapid manner. These are not at all like that. They're very much homebodies. Where all can you find these fish geographically? 
the full extent of the range, well, that's a little bit of a moving target. <laughs> because of warming seas, particularly on, on the Atlantic side of the coast, we're starting to see a variety of species move northward. But really, you know, Virginia's, the Carolinas, of course, all around Florida, we kind of lose them when you get around the Florida Keys area and they're replaced by some more tropical species. But then real quickly, just south of Tampa, that side of Florida, all around the Gulf of Mexico, especially down into Mexico, they are very, very common. And then down into the Caribbean, they begin to be replaced by other more tropical snapper species. Perfect. That's helpful. So in terms of angling, I'm kind of thinking up here in Alaska, I mean, we go after different types of rockfish. We've got some that are pelagic moving a lot. Some of them are really keyed into structure, like you've mentioned. What are some different techniques from a recreational standpoint that people are using to actually catch these fish? Well, the traditional method to catch them was a heavy weight, like an eight ounce weight and a hook with generally squid or fish, or they're, again, they're not particular. They're going to feed on whatever you drop down. Bites are not going to be the challenge. You know? okay. Typically, you know, if you were talking about a commercial operation, which might drop down 20 hooks or more, you know, each hook is filled up and they're very aggressive fish. So, but what has happened recently, which has become interesting, they become so abundant if you chum a little bit in the water beforehand, they tend to come to the surface. They're very much associated Ooh. with the bottom or the yeah. structure. So they become, a, interestingly enough, a fly fishing target where you okay. can cast flies to them from the surface. Would that be fun? That's also interesting because it, many, I'm sure, of your listeners are divers and know about the bends or decompression sickness. These fish get it as well if you reel them too quickly from the surface. Of course, the gases are expanding. So what's interesting is we can bring them up to the surface naturally sometimes and avoid that uh, impact, which we call that barotrauma or pressure-related yep. injuries. It's an interesting way to reduce mortality if you plan to release these fish. Okay, that's great. So they got the yeah, certain type of swim bladder that you have to be aware of if you're bringing them up and if, say, I catch one of these fish, I am interested in releasing it or I've caught my living and I want to release it. What are some techniques if they do have that barrow trauma? I brought them up from depth. What are some good techniques in terms of handling them and releasing them safely? Yeah, and that's really a critical component of it. I guess the good news is it's turning out, which most people would not believe, these fish do very well in terms of catch and release. Our recent study, it's called the Great Red Snapper Count, had a very large tagging component to this. And we were getting 30% of our fish back that we have tagged, which is just unheard of from a tagging study, especially from a deep water reef fish that suffers this barotrauma. So then the question is, well, how do you alleviate that? In fact, I serve on the Gulf of Mexico Fishery Management Council that manages this fishery. And we recently passed some rules and there's some federal legislation that requires if you're targeting reef fish like red snapper, you have a venting tool on board or a descender device. A venting tool is a large needle you insert into the fish and let the gases out. We don't necessarily recommend that, although scientifically we've shown if it's done right, it's very effective, but folks don't always know where to insert a large needle in a fish. So, you know, that can cause problems. There's all sorts of devices now out on the market. We like one called sequelizers. We're not endorsing them or anything. It just works really well. And that's what we use during the study. And it's pressure sensitive valve and you click it onto the fish's mouth. It's reusable. It's weighted. You send the fish back down and let's say you dial in, you want it to open at 30 or 50 feet. You can choose a variety of options. And then it automatically opens at depth. So you've rapidly recompressed this fish without having to vent it. And you're an angler, right? 
very much an angler. I okay. also direct a sport fish center. So yeah. that's kind of a requirement, but a very yeah. much an avid angler. Yeah. I guess kind of what attracted you to this species and is this your favorite species to fish for? Just I'd love to hear more about your angling history and just what you like about it. Yeah, well, I grew up fishing, you know, in freshwater of all things for what you all might call sunfish or brim or, you know, the bluegill variety. We call them perch down here in in Texas, but perch can mean a lot of things to different people. You know, the whole classic worm on a hook when the bobber goes down, you know, I think that got me hooked when I was very, very, very young and just love the outdoors in terms of all things outdoors from fishing to hunting and everything else that goes along with that. And so I just discovered I could make a career out of that. And that's sort of how I ended up where I am today. Okay. And what's your favorite way to go fish for snapper? Oh yeah, definitely snappers at the top of my list there and going out, dropping a hook, especially with kids, because they're such a cooperative fish, I guess you could say with, it's the perfect, you know, they don't have to wait around boring, waiting on a bite kind of thing. The gear's simple, doesn't require any real advanced skill or anything like that. And then of course, as you grow as an angler, you begin to do things like fly fishing and make it a little harder on yourself. It becomes much more about the process than the catching kind of things. So we do everything from a worm on a hook to, you know, catching some of the largest sharks and other fish in the ocean. So awesome. That's cool. As a follow-up, what's your favorite way to cook a red snapper? Yeah, well, that's that that's an easy one. We saute them over a creamy rice recipe. Ooh. That's about the best way. Mm. Although, you know, South Texas and other regions in the South, fried red snapper is pretty darn good if you're not heart-healthy conscious, you know. So yeah. anyway. <laughs> and these fish get pretty big, right, too? So you could get a number of fillets. Oh, yeah, yeah. Or like meals off of one, I should say. Yeah, the size limit starts depending on where you're at, you know, 14 to 16 inches realm, and they get up to 30 and sometimes even bigger. And so, yeah, the good news is this fisheries recovered. Catching a 15, 20 pound snapper is pretty routine. So, yeah, you get plenty of delicious fillets off of them. And what are the different ways that people could get their hands on a snapper? I mean, I don't have my own personal boat that I can run offshore catch a snapper myself and come back. Are there charter boats, party boats, head boats that offer options for this? Can you buy it in a seafood market? Are there commercial fisheries for it? Well, all of the above, you know, so you can buy it commercially, certainly because of the nature of uh, its high food value, you know, you'll be paying $30 a pound. So, you know, may not be the most Mm -hmm. economical type, Mm -hmm. but it's definitely, you know, commanding that kind of price for a variety of reasons. But believe it or not, because the fishery has become so robust, some folks are even capturing these inshore, but a real popular thing in Texas to do is get kayaks from the beach and you paddle, let's say a mile or so offshore. There's very robust populations. That's awesome. Yeah, so that's easy access and relatively cheap access. Of course, there's private boats. Typically, the best fishing occurs in that 30 to 40 mile distance from shore. So that's not an easy or necessarily cheap way of getting them. Accessing, But yeah. there's charter boats that, you know, are very, very popular to, to relatively expensive. You know, four to six people can charter a charter boat and have a great day fishing and catch a lot of other stuff, too, in addition to the Red Snapper. And then we have what we call party boats or head boats. They're called head boats because you pay by the head or by the person. And that gives access to people that maybe couldn't afford a charter boat for, you know, $75 per person. You can go out and access some of these deep water, blue water species for a fairly economical price.
I'm glad that the seal has been cracked on this great <laughs> red snapper account because that's something I very much wanted to talk to you about. When I first heard that they were trying to figure out absolute abundance of red snapper in like the whole Gulf of Mexico, it seems like a Herculean effort to try and figure that out. So I'm just curious, what was the impetus for starting a project like this? Why was it necessary to do? And then how did you go about conducting this kind of research? Yeah, so first, the iconic nature of this fish and this fishery is really what was driving it. And of course, NOAA, your sister agency, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration through their NOAA Fisheries Group, handles the management of this federally, and they do stock assessments to assess the status of the stock. And that wasn't necessarily mirroring what anglers and commercial fishermen were seeing on the water, which was a very, very high abundance of red snapper. In fact, it had recovered so much from all-time lows, more than in anyone's lifetimes that were living. And so you really just couldn't stay away from red snappers. And because that wasn't being seen or reconciled in the assessment, we were asked to do an independent study to really figure out how many snapper were in the Gulf of Mexico. And Congress earmarked sort of an unprecedented amount, which the total price tag on the study was $12 million dollars. It involved 11 institutions, 22 investigators. You know, I led the study and was able to sort of assemble the dream team of red snapper scientists throughout the world, particularly <laughs> in the awesome. Gulf. There's a study now in the South Atlantic going on out there. They didn't get quite as much money, so we kind of jokingly call it the pretty good red snapper count <laughs> instead of the great red snapper <laughs> count. Kind of just give them a little jab. But no, they've got a great group of scientists estimating the abundance of red snapper in the Gulf of Mexico, the absolute mm -hmm. abundance. But somehow or another, the great red snapper count came along the way. We didn't give it that name, but that's kind of what stuck. So I guess I'm kind of curious. Noah, you know, I know the people who work over there and they seem to be pretty competent folks. But the on-the-water reality seemed different than what their stock assessments were reporting. Do you have any right. idea why that was, what you guys were doing differently, what you found, and then is the, this study that you've done actually affecting management today? Yes, they're certainly well-qualified scientists, but sometimes, you know, what the assessments produce are not really reflective of reality, and that turned out to be the case. Part of the problem was the amount of structure out there was probably really underestimated in terms of natural and artificial reefs. And so we certainly found a lot of fish on what had traditionally been called snapper banks because, you know, mm. hello, there's a red snapper there. But then also artificial <laughs> reefs like oil and gas platforms or many times Mother Nature's habitats have been enhanced by man, such as reef pyramids or intentionally sunken ships or whatever it might be. Each state in the Gulf has artificial reef programs or rigs to reef programs. Those were not probably thoroughly assessed, but the major discovery or scientific finding that we had from the study was the lion's share of the fish were what we called out over uncharacterized bottom. That means open ocean bottom, not unstructured bottom from what we were talking about earlier. These are a reef fish after all and orient to structure. But it turned out there was a lot more of that out there than we could imagine. And then when you begin to extrapolate that over the vastness of the Gulf of Mexico, that number grows really rapidly. And so our estimates were about 110 million red snapper in the Gulf of Mexico, wow. where the assessment was producing an estimate of about 30 million. So, you know, we well mm. over tripled the amount that was there. We have some pretty serious battles over who gets these fish. No one was ever questioning sort of the health of the stock. It was more who gets the 15 million pounds, which is what the allocation is. 
Well, this study showed that in fact, there's 800 million pounds of fish in the Gulf of Mexico. So, you know, there's obviously a big discrepancy there. And so I would certainly not be a proponent of, okay, well, let's just open it up and go catch 800 million pounds of red snapper. You know, that's not the way to do it, but we probably can relax a little bit and of course, closely monitor it over time. So it's kind of a win-win for all components of the fishery. When I was hanging out at Nymphs, I asked someone to explain to me how the red snapper fishery was managed, and I ended up standing around for 90 minutes. I don't know if I got any closer to the answer. Yeah, you probably need more like nine days. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) but uh, how is the quota distributed among these different stakeholders, and who is in charge? Like, Are the feds actually managing it, or are the states responsible? You've got a limited podcast here, so let me do my best to nutshell it, and it's an exceptionally complex process. The feds determine the quota right now, but it's managed by the states in terms of season length, bag limit, and that sort of thing, and each state is given a particular quota, and that is for the private recreational sector only. The commercial sector, they're managed separately directly by the National Marine Fishery Service, The four hire groups, which are your charter captains and guides, have a certain season. For example, this year is just announced yesterday, in fact, that it will run from June the 1st to August the 25th. So from a three-day season to that, you know, we've done a pretty good job. Oh, it used to only be a three-day season? Yeah. At one point, just a few years ago, we were pushed down to three, sometimes seven, sometimes 11. The Commerce Secretary had to step in and put in an emergency season to extend that because of the economics behind it. And that happened to be at the time, Guy, when people were reporting you can't catch anything but red snapper. You know, mm-hmm. In fact, you can't stay away from them. Man, that must have ruffled some feathers, ruffled some fins. Yes, your listeners probably have no idea unless they're familiar with this fishery. And then, of course, the commercial fishery is managed through something called a limited access um, privilege program called an IFQ or individual fishing quota. And so that's a bunch of mouthful of acronyms, which basically means if you had historical catch in that fishery, you were given a piece of the quota and then you get that amount and you can fish that however you want, whenever you want till you reach that particular quota. It curbed a lot of problems we have in that fishery, such as derby fishing and the season opens. And mm-hmm. regardless of the weather, everybody goes out and catches them, puts a glut of fish on the market and all kind of problems like that. But it also opened the door. It probably wasn't thought through as well as it should have, because what happens when those individuals pass away and does it go to their heirs and they may not mm-hmm. fish any longer and they have to lease it to the folks doing the fishing, but they pay them sort of pennies on the dollar and Right now at the Gulf Council, we're having some really, really challenging meetings trying to figure out how to better manage that individual fishing quota program as the older fishermen are beginning to retire and stop fishing. And so anyway, that's probably where a lot of the controversy comes into that fishery. Yeah, it's interesting Interesting. as just if you're just an angler or someone who likes this fish, yeah, to actually kind of have that just view of what actually goes into managing a species like this. Yeah, and what makes it so difficult is that we call it a mixed-use fishery. Unlike, you know, Alaskan king crab, you know, there's probably not a lot of recreational people fishing Alaskan king crab that much compared to this is basically 50% commercial, 50% recreational. And the real battle is deciding who gets the fish. And that's where we have a lot of the contention in terms of what we do. 
Yep. Kudos to all the scientists working on it. Their fish are very, oh, yeah. yeah, very complicated to learn about, especially it seems like those ocean fishes and just the technology that goes into actually being able to track them and know their behavior and know their life history, especially for exactly. long lived fish like this. That's cool. So I got a question for you on this. <laughs> it makes sense how you can monitor commercial catch. How do you track recreational catch of a fish like red snapper? Yeah, well, that's where you're hitting on the big problem. So commercial catch, they're under a pretty strict reporting system. And of course, they eventually have to sell those fish. And so there's a ticket at the dock of when those fish are sold so they can account for that pretty well. Now, that doesn't mean it's perfect. And law enforcement is uncovering black market snapper all the time and all of that. But it's very different than on the recreational side where you and I could go catch snapper and people may or may not even know that we've been fishing. And of course, there's creelers at the docks that try to gauge that effort. There's what was in the past telephone surveys or mail-out surveys, which tried to gauge that effort. We call that system MRIP, the Marine Recreational Information Program. And to say that people distrust that system is very much an understatement Mm. because, you know, it's a difficult (laughs) number to gauge. A colleague of mine we're literally sitting around one evening at the lab and said, what if we developed an app where anglers could just enter the data, you know, the recreational side, wouldn't that be great? So that little conversation started in a program we called iSnapper. And it was a way to gauge catching the recreational fishery. And anyway, but now each states have similar programs and other ways where the states are doing the best job at gauging recreational catch, but it's still an elusive number. When was the red snapper fishery? When was it stock at the low point and how low was that? And then how has it gotten back to where it is today? Well, of course, this fishery has been caught forever. You know, sailing vessels were catching it near shore. Of course, it was offshore in a reef, so it was hard to locate areas. Electronics got better. You got motorized engines and then ice was developed, you know, where you could carry ice on board. And that really changed the game. You know, we increase our ability to exploit this fishery, essentially. So since the 1800s, it's kind of been going down. But then it was the 80s and 90s is when it was really bad. But we always had this really peculiar problem that even though the assessment said the stock was at lowest ever, the recruitment or the babies that were produced were always at all-time highs. So it never made sense. How could you have the lowest parents on record, but the highest children on record? You know, it just didn't, it wasn't making sense. And so that probably was because what we discovered in the red snapper count, that you had what we call this hidden biomass, and you had all these fish out on this open bottom. And even though it's not really mud, it's a structured habitats we just didn't know existed. And those were the ones creating all the babies, but all the popular fishing areas were low in abundance. Mm -hmm. So it kind of, it might've been misleading. I'm not saying we weren't in trouble and we're not in a much better place than we were in the eighties and nineties. But the, the good news is that we've got all this biomass that's spawning out there. That's very difficult to fish because you don't know where it is. Mm -hmm. By the way, we towed camera rays across the Gulf of Mexico, just behind boats for hours on end, 24 seven. And we would have come across these pockets of red snapper. And then, of course, it'd be a lot of zero, zero, zeros. And then you couldn't really pull your gear through it because there'd be so many snapper at some point. 
Did you at least have AI review of that footage or was it just a person watching that the whole time? <laughs> like burn your eyes out. Oh no, that's that's what we call graduate students. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, but no, it was it was very, very difficult. But that is an interesting we do are exploring with ways of AI to help us with with that, by the way. Um, but anyway, so it it's the good news there is that in terms of overfishing. I'm personally not, and I think a lot of people are not as concerned as we once were because we kind of have all this biomass, even though it's not a formally protected marine reserve, you got a reserve supply out there that can continuously replenish that population. And that's really good news for everyone. When's the next official NOAA stock assessment on this species due? It is ongoing right now as we speak, and it's a long, drawn-out, multi-year process, so it's probably going to be the next maybe a year and a half, something like that, I'd predict, before that they're done. Of course, we're anxiously awaiting that because that's when the Great Red Snapper data will be integrated into that assessment. Well, I look forward to seeing it when it drops. Yeah, yeah me too. Do you have any just kind of take-home messages for anglers out there in terms of management? Yeah, if you're unhappy with the way the red snapper fishery is managed right now, you've got to get involved in the process. And there are a multitude of ways the public can get involved in the federal fisheries management process in a very easy way. But if you're not making your voices heard, it's the standard squeaky wheels are going to get the grease kind of thing. Okay, that's a good point. I think that's a probably good advice across the board, not just in this geography, but elsewhere as well. Even up here in Alaska, we've got a similar kind of process. If you're interested, you know, we encourage anglers to report their data. In fact, now in most Gulf states, it's a requirement. Traditionally, recreational anglers haven't had to report what they catch, so that's not part of the culture. But if we don't have that data, that makes management very difficult. The way we allocate fisheries is based on historical catch. And so if you're not documenting that catch, you kind of miss out on that, you know, your share of the pie, so to speak. Mm -hmm. So having good, accurate data in fisheries is probably one of our greatest challenges. Help a manager out and help the fish report your catch. Yeah. (laughs) Cool. Awesome. Final question for me, for folks living along the Gulf Coast, do you have any tips on just how to be a good steward, either towards reefs in general or just coastal habitats that are kind of that interface between the land and the ocean where these fish are? Yeah, in general, you know, we want to be wise stewards of the resource. In Texas, you know, our population by 2050 is expected to double, and much of that doubling is going to be along the coastal zones, which are going to put more pressure on things like red snapper and other inshore species. So we, of course, as a sport fish center, would never preach you shouldn't keep fish. We think that's a very culturally important part of the sport to enjoy fresh fish with your family that's caught it and all of that. But we're reaching a a time where we should probably be thinking about more catch and release. And whether you're talking about sunfish or thousand pound mako sharks and everything in between, it turns out we're starting to see these species handle catch and release really well. And so if, if you're interested in that and maybe only keeping some for dinner or really what you need, Catch and release is a very effective management tool, and now we have ways and videos and all sorts of things for anglers to be what we call wise stewards of the resource and utilize those techniques to keep our fisheries healthy and robust. And do people call you Dr. Snapper? They do sometimes, (laughs) unfortunately, (laughs) but yeah, or fortunately, I don't know how you do that. But yes, I had several articles written about that in the past. I saw it online. I was like, that's awesome. I didn't see that. I hadn't seen that. That's cool. 
Well, thank you so much, Greg. This was fascinating. What a, what a right. cool fish. Sure. Yeah, appreciate it. Yeah. Great talking with you all. Get out there and enjoy all the fish, especially the snappers. Thanks for listening to Fish of the Week. My name is Katrina Liebeck, and my co-host is Guy Iro. Our production partner for the series is Citizen Racecar. Produced and story edited by Tasha A.F. Lemley. Production management by Gabriella Montequin. Post-production by Alex Brower. Fish of the Week is a production of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Alaska Regional Office of External Affairs. We honor, thank, and celebrate the whole community, individual tribes, states, our sister agencies, fish enthusiasts, scientists, and others who have elevated our understanding and love as people and professionals of all the fish.